1959, the Iwako High School boys basketball team had an undefeated season coached by the legendary Don Lee. On March 13th, the locals went a little crazy when the state championship game in Olympia, which Astoria radio station KVAS had promised to carry, was not being broadcast due to technical difficulties. In the second half, the signal was finally found and townsfolk could listen as their fishermen defeated Harrington 79-53 to become the state champs. When the bus arrived back from the tournament at the Capitol, there was a spontaneous parade down the main strip, complete with local ambulances and police sirens along the way. For a magical night, it felt like Iwako was the center of the universe. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. What's good, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Happy generic time of day to you. Today, I'm welcoming in longtime friend and guest, Joel Underwood. How you doing, buddy? How you doing, man? Good to see you. Yeah, good to be seen. Good to see you. So Joel has um, stepped stepped out on me. And is <laughs> doing his own thing, not just co-hosting. Um, and I'm thankful for all the times that you do co-host with me, and I look forward to more of them. But you got a new podcast called um, Song on Main Street. Is that mm-hmm. the correct title? A Song for Main Street. Yeah, Song yeah, yeah. for Main Street. Yeah. Street. And you can find that on Spotify mm-hmm. and Buzzsprout. Hopefully, hopefully Apple Podcasts soon, too. I'm waiting on confirmation from them. Yeah, it takes a minute to get all the on all those uh, platforms for sure. Yeah, yeah. So tell the listeners a little bit about the idea of this podcast and why you decided to do it. Uh, sure. So I, I guess it it kind of goes back to the fact that I, it actually has its roots. Truth be told, kind of on on this show, one of the last times we were together. Um, oh, that's I, right. 
uh, I I was watching what happened on on January sixth at the Capitol. I've I've been you know you know me. I've been like a political observer for a while. I, I'm I've been troubled by the state of kind of what's happening in America, and and one of the big themes that I'm seeing and that I've been seeing for a while is that rural small town America and urban city America are losing the ability, in my opinion, are losing the ability to speak to each other. They are are not sometimes even talking the same language, let alone recognizing that we're all going through some of the same stuff. We're all dealing with some of the same problems. We all have some of the same dreams and goals. We want to be safe. We want to raise good kids. You know, we want our schools to be good, all, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I have always kind of felt like I have a foot in both worlds. You know, I was, I was born and raised in, in rural North Carolina. Um, I had a restaurant in Shelton, for God's sake, which was, you know, it, to 10,000 people tops. Uh, I've been, you know, spent the last year and a half or so uh, serving sandwiches to, to those folks. Um, and, but I've also lived in cities. You know, I left and I, I went to college in Chicago and, and Denver and, and lived in Seattle. And so I feel like I kind of speak both those languages. I have a foot in both those worlds. And January 6th really stressed to me that, you know, when I, I turned on the TV and I saw those people storming the Capitol and I thought about some of the lessons of history of things like Pol Pot, the killing fields, stuff as that. I mean, I really got a sense that things are getting dangerously separated. This wedge is really getting bad and we're reaching a crisis point with this inability for these two Americas to communicate. And so I kind of feel like if you're in a language situation where you've got two parties that don't speak the same language and you do speak both languages, you kind of have a moral responsibility to step in and say, Hey, I'll translate. I'll help, you know? And then the last time you and I were here at these microphones, you remember we were talking to Mr. John Perkins about uh, his touch the Jaguar book. And, and, a lot of what he said really resonated with me. Me too. I mean, I, I was deeply affected. Yeah. No, that was that was a, quite a quite an hour we spent with him, and one of the things he said at the end really hit me when I asked him a question about sort of what do we do next? What is the next step? How can okay? We've decided we want to make these changes. How do we go about making them? And he outlined that that five step process, and you know the first step is well, what do you do? What do you like to do? What are your talents? What are your gifts? What are your abilities? How can you find a way to do it in a way that helps, that, that doesn't hurt? And then the other steps go on to, well, what are the obstacles blocking you? How can you start to overcome those obstacles? But the first two really hit me. What do you do? And how can you find a way to do it that help? And so I sat down and I thought, you know, what do I do? What can I do? Well, I'm a, I'm a history teacher. I'm a, a researcher. I'm a, a writer. I'm a songwriter, I'm a musician, and I'm also, you know, I'm an audio engineer. I mean, I can, I, I'm sort of a one-man show. I can do, a, in terms of a podcast, I can do kind of the whole thing soup to nuts. I don't have to go out and find other people. So, so that's kind of what I can do. So how can I do it in a way that helps? So I came up with this idea of going to a small town, doing a podcast and doing a, a series of them where 
in, for a week, I go to a small town, and I'm starting out with just Washington towns, but I'll, I'd, I'd love to expand past that. But Washington's where I live. Washington's what I know right now. And I spend a week there. I get to know the local history. I do some research. I try to figure out what it was like pre-COVID versus post-COVID. Where's it been? Where's it going? I hopefully find a resident who has lived there for a long time. And, and Pauline, who I interview in the first uh, episode, she's 92 and has lived in Owako her entire life, which made her ideal. And I, I really try to get a feel for the town, record some of the sounds of it, things like that. And then hopefully over the course of the week, I write a song and the podcast closes each episode with the song that I've written that has to do with, with the town, with a, a terrific story I heard or, or, or a sense of the town's rhythms or where it is or where it's going and to do a different town each time. So that's what I decided to do. And the first town I picked was Ilwaco out on the coast. If you guys have never been out there, it's right where the Columbia River dumps out into the Pacific Ocean, right across the big long bridge out there from Astoria. And I did the first episode, put it up, and the response has been really great. That's uh, really good quality podcast, Joel. I'm, I'm, well, thank you, man. I'm proud of you, and um, that that means a lot coming from the expert. You know? I get out of here. I am um, definitely am looking forward to the next one. A couple questions about it. Um, sure. I know you're you're like myself, one man show on doing all this stuff. How are you going to pay for, <laughs> for all that travel and hotels? And are you sleeping well, out of your car on a park bench? What's going so, on there? So that's the deal. I mean, that's I started with Ilwaco, very frankly, because I knew I had a place to stay out there. I've I've got some family that lives not in Ilwaco, but a little farther up the coast, so I could gotcha. make that work. Um, but yeah, the tr- the travel part of it is is the part that that I will need to finance going forward. Now I'm looking at some various possibilities. Uh, applying for grants. I've, I've contacted the Washington State Historical Society, uh, some other organizations like that. For those of you who don't know much about grants and grant writing out there, mm, they don't generally give grants to individuals. They generally give them to organizations, to, to NGOs. And, and only nonprofits, correct? Yes, generally. It depends on the grant, but yeah, usually. Now, there are some big, huge grants like the MacArthur Foundation where you don't contact them. They contact you. They just get they, they become aware of what you're doing and your phone rings one day and they say, hello, Mr. Underwood, uh, we're from the MacArthur Foundation. What would you do with $250,000? And if they like your answer. But, but those things are very, very rare. Um, I'm also potentially looking at some sponsorship. I'd, I'd love to hook up with maybe like a, I, I don't know, like a Super 8 or a Motel 6 or something that really they would they would be interested in, besides getting mentioned on the podcast, um, me being able to kind of use them as a home base. Because the other thing that I've really, really worked on in this podcast is portability. I should be able, with me and my guitar and my laptop and a couple of microphones, to be able to, to do the whole thing soup to nuts in my motel room with some Wi-Fi. So, you know, I, I'd go and I'd spend some time at local libraries and museums, things like that. But when it comes down to the recording, I could do the whole thing sitting in, in, a, in a motel room. I went and recorded uh, the interviews with, with Pauline and Luann at Luann's Coffee Shop, which was a great little place to do that. Um, but, you know, recording the, the guitar and the song in the room, mixing it right there in the room. As you well know, anybody who's got even basic 
audio software on a laptop now has at their fingertips more audio engineering software than the Beatles had when they made Sgt. Pepper or Brian Wilson had when he made Pet Sounds. I mean, things are just incredibly advanced now. And and so portability and, and the ability to do the whole thing in one place is a big deal. I don't have to go into a recording studio. I don't have to hire an engineer. I don't have to come back to Seattle and get it mixed down. I, I can do the whole thing right there. So um, maybe thinking about um, taking it to some rental car companies and seeing about uh, potentially some some sponsorship that way to, to sort of almost do it as, as a travel you know, podcast because people a lot of times these these small towns are really great places. To, if you've never been to Ilwaco, geez, go on a summer day. Go for one of the fishing derbies or something like that. These little towns are hidden treasures. They're really great. And if we don't, I think one of the one of the primary messages of the podcast is if we don't sort of treasure them and pay attention to them while they're around, we're going to blink and turn around and some of them won't be. And they'll, yeah, they'll get... Yeah, they'll get eaten by some, some some closer cities, or they'll get eaten by unincorporated Pacific County or whatever, and and we're going to lose a lot, and and we in some cases might not even know what we're going to be losing, but it'll be way too bad. Well, I just look at downtown metropolis Seattle and how much we've lost, over you know, with the jobs and the shuttering of businesses and stuff, and then I listen to a podcast about Ilwaco, and you know, there used to be a rail system; they have mm-hmm. supply chain issues. They have uh, fishing conflicts. Um, they have limited seasons for the razor clam and fishing. So yeah. it's not always 24-7 open for business. And you have a small demographic of a 1,000 people or, or whatnot. That could easily become a ghost town, you know, quicker than, than anything. Yeah, well, we, I mean, right now, of course, we all want to talk about COVID, and rightfully so. It's, it's the, the shaping force of our time but a lot of these little towns they were on the ropes down for the count before covid ever came along because of this that or the other whether it's the the salmon going away or you know i'm headed out east i think next i might be headed out for sprague sprague is sounding attractive to me and it's about the right size um and i have a place to stay so uh you know these these towns that maybe the 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 interstate came through and then suddenly they they did in uh, uh, the 1980s, they did a, a business bypass around. So you didn't have to go through town anymore on the interstate. You could stay up at 65 and and just zip around it. And suddenly just things start miss closing down and boarding up and you can miss it completely. And then COVID comes along, right, and exacerbates all that. Now you've got these towns that were already struggling, these, these local little coffee houses that were already fighting to, to keep their price point against the Starbucks or, and these little bookshops that were already fighting to keep their price points against Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And now it's not, are there people are being told it's not safe to go. They're boarding up. They don't really do mail order and takeaway. And, and again, we're going to turn around and this stuff is going to be gone and we're not going to hear it go even yeah there's lots of problems i mean you think about how difficult it is for the average person to get a vaccine now think of somebody rural that's you know miles and miles away from a major city or a distribution point and you know just you take for granted the gas station or the 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 supermarket you know i was thinking about that 
after listening to the podcast that it takes about 10,000 people to have a supermarket move into your right. neighborhood. Yeah. And you we have talked a about that. small demographic there. Then what moves in in a poor community like that is like the dollar store becomes your grocery store. Yes. Yes. And it, it doesn't help your health. It becomes a horrible situation. And yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you've had people on the podcast where I can't, I'm trying to remember who, who I heard was talking about this that you interviewed, but the idea of the food desert, right? Even though you're in, you're, you're in a, a civilized area, even though you're, you're in maybe even an urban downtown section, let alone a, a small little, little town like Iwako out in, in Southwest Washington. Um, and you don't have enough people to make a safe way go. And so you've got people getting their food from the 7-Eleven or the dollar store, like you point out. Well, I mean, there's been study after study after study that then your nutrition goes in, in the crapper and, and that's the only food you can get. Not to mention it, it can sometimes be more expensive and it's harder to eat healthy. And, and so we, and not to mention, let's say you're an older person, so you don't have access to, to driving perhaps. And, and so you're, you're sort of limited to what's close to you. It can, it can turn into to situations like food and nutrition deserts very, very quickly. And again, the, these are not unique problems to any one area, to any one race, to any one state, to, to anything. But when we start looking at, at the place we're at, whether it's in the middle of downtown Seattle or on Bainbridge Island or whatever, and we think that other people, because they live in other places like Shelton, whatever, they don't have the same problems I do. They don't have the same needs I do. They don't want the same things I do. Well, that's where it begins, right? That's where that division starts. And when the stories about them come on the news and those people are mad because their taxes are, are being raised and yet they're never going to drive on the West Seattle Bridge or go on the light rail and they're mad about that, I just dismiss them. And when we start dismissing one another, that sows the seeds of, of this division. Yeah, I was talking about that, about bicycles, the, often actually, about the, the angst between the vehicles and the bicyclists and what are the perceived right-of-ways and laws and such. And a big thing is tabs for your bicycles. So a lot of people come from this thought process that my tax dollar from my car tab pay for these roads you're not contributing contributing as a bicyclist and you want bike lanes hey i would gladly pay a tab if every road had a bicycle lane oh yeah i think a lot yeah i think a lot of bikers would it's not a division between us it just hasn't happened right and it's it's that kind of thing it is the willingness to to even attempt not see th- from somebody else's point of view, but even to attempt to see from somebody else's point of view. I mean, if, if you're living out in, in Spokane, or let's say even, even not even somewhere as big as Spokane, if you're living out in, in Cheney or Medical Lake or somewhere out east, and you look in the paper and your property taxes are going up again to pay for a transportation project in... Seattle to, to help with the 520 bridge from, from Seattle over to the east side of Lake Washington that you may never in your life drive upon. Okay, somebody can explain that to you. Somebody can logically lay that out to you, but you can't blame people for being a little upset about that. 
And, and, and if you see it from just their point of view for a second, it doesn't, it, 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 that's where it begins. If we can talk about it, if we can have a discussion, if we can, the, the um, Romans had a great saying, I'll, I'll translate it from the Latin, if it can be mentioned, it can be managed. If you can talk about something, if we can at least begin to have a dialogue about it, we're already on the road to making it better. But it's the things where we decide, well, I can't even talk about that with you. Yeah, hasn't even, society kind of just picked their side before the conversation even you, happens? Yeah, and, and there's nothing that you can say. It's like arguing with people on Facebook. There is nothing you're going to read. There is nothing you're going to see that's going to change your opinion. You're just howling out into the void. And that's not harmless. It really isn't harmless. We saw on January 6th, that is not harmless. Things can get to a point where that can become, those divisions can become violent. And, and the next thing you know, you've got people storming the Capitol, you've got uh, people getting tased and, and shot, and this, this stuff can, can get to a point of violence very, very quickly. A little off the topic here. Have you heard Michael Cohen's Mia Culpa? Attorney for I, Trump. I've been following him a little bit. He's I, I liked his his retweet yesterday that like anytime the New York Attorney General wants to talk to you, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. I mean, his podcast has been very centered on the January sixth incident at the Capitol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, just the the way the justice system works in certain fashions, but not always equal for everyone. De- definitely not equal for him. pretty interesting i mean I, I gained a lot more respect for him after i heard him on a more regular basis hmm. speak so t- tell the listeners a little bit about ilwaco Il- ilwaco I, I, I just love saying it yeah Il- ilwaco uh which is by the way the the um the name is derived from uh ilwaco jim who was the last native american chief of uh, the Chinook tribe in the area, or it might also be derived from the Chinook word that means where the trail comes out, or in this case, where the river comes out, because it's where the, the Columbia River dumps out in, into the ocean. Um, just fascinating people everywhere you look. You got to remember, by the time Lewis and Clark get there in 1805, they're sad. They're upset because their mission has basically, everybody forgets this, the Lewis and Clark mission was a failure. They were supposed to find the water route from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean that doesn't exist. And so by the time they, they get out to, to it, I mean, it was called Cape Disappointment for, for Pete's sake. But by the time they get out there, they're, they're upset. They're disappointed. Um, there's nobody there. The, the Chinook tribe by that time has basically vacated. But there are just these, really, really cool stories of, of these pioneers who showed up in the area and not only would not take no for an answer, but, but have these, these incredibly colorful backstories. Uh, one of the guys was, uh, in the early days, was a ferry boat captain who used to run people back and forth across from Astoria in his boat. Uh, but he actually thought he could cross the, the Columbia river, even in a canoe um, and get swamped one night in a storm drowns. But one of the interesting things is that he spent, there've been a lot of shipwrecks out there, a lot mm. of shipwrecks out there because there's sandbars out there that you can't see. Well, he salvaged a lot of shipwrecks. And so uh, there's this legend that in his house, which is one of the first big houses that really got built in the area, he buried all this treasure 
And you don't think of Ilwaco and Long Beach and places like that as places where you go and hunt for buried treasure. But literally hundreds of people have come through the years and the property owners have been very cool. They're, they're like people have been bringing out metal detectors and and divining rods and trying to to search for this lost hoard of of gold that that no one has ever found. Um, there used to be a train that ran back and forth that was really one of the the biggest sort of uh, highways of commerce up and down the peninsula. Um, that was really neat, but people don't know you could like book the train for you and a party of people to go see like a beached whale or to go have a, a party or things like it would, or you could just, if you could get up to the tracks close enough as it was coming by, you could like flag it down and it would stop for you. If you've ever ridden like the Seattle light rail, just imagine that or the Seattle streetcar, just being on the street and you could just wave it and flag it down. I mean, that was the kind of place Ilwaco was. They won the state basketball championship in 1959 with an undefeated season and, and had this, this incredible mini parade through town that was, that was really neat. And uh, Pauline, who I got to talk to, who is 92 years old, and she's, she's just wonderful, um, very nicely gave me an hour of her time at this beautiful little coffee shop. She was the ninth of 11 children, and uh, her family goes back there almost to the founding. She lost a, a brother. Her, her, one of her brothers uh, was working on the bridge from uh, Ilwaco over to Astoria, the, the, the famous Wegler Bridge that's still there, and he fell and and fell off and she she lost a brother i mean there's there's all this amazing little history there and the interesting thing is the way i sort of planned the podcast is i would go to the town whatever town i go to and i would spend the first couple of days in libraries in the local museum well that's not really possible right now uh, mm -hmm. pacific heritage museum is there i i hardly encourage people to go to it when it opens back up but it's closed right now and and so I kind of had to do a lot of oral tradition mining. And luckily, I had Pauline, who was 92, had lived there her whole life, and Luann, who owns Old Town Coffee right on the main square there, who uh, also her family had lived there her whole life, who were both willing to talk to me, knew everybody. And, and it, was, it was just a terrific resource. So, yeah. I, I hardly, again, go. When things start to open up and it feels, does it feel to you, kind of like things are starting to maybe open up a little bit. This is starting to ease. How it feels to me is enraging. Um, How, what do you mean enraging? How does it? I, I just feel like people have fatigued out. They're, they're yeah. much la more lax in how they approach things. And we're like, hey, I gave it a year. I'm done with it. Screw mm. it. I'm over it. Yeah. I'm moving on regardless. And I mean, how many people are still washing their hands for 20 seconds and, you know, yeah. using sanitizer when they touch things in the grocery store? And, you know, yeah. the vaccine rollout has been much improved since the Biden administration has came on and just kind of cleaned up the supply chain. It, it sounded like there wasn't a good system that yeah. the Trump administration just thought it would just roll out and it, it would work. Right. And we saw that that didn't work early on. Um but we're still at only about 20% and we have massive amounts of variants coming out of this virus and, and Europe's feeling it right now. There's mm -hmm. a lot of danger, you know, and uh, kids went back to school before teachers got vaccinated, which was mm. you know, heartbreaking to me. 
because you think about who are the teachers, they're the older population. Also, I think the main thing is there's just a lack of substitute teachers too. If a teacher wants to bow out until this vaccine is there, the unions don't always have their back and they're not guaranteed to keep that job. But it's kind of double-edged sword because they threaten to, you know, um, relieve these teachers of their duties, but they don't have substitutes in the wings or qualified younger teachers. I mean, and, you know, I just think about all the high school seniors and, and stuff oh, like that. Yeah. Um, my son's done really well through this situation, but as an eighth grader, you know, he's kind of getting geared up to get prepared for when it counts, right? Ninth that's grade big, grades man. count. Here it comes. But that's nothing compared to somebody that had their half their junior year taken away from them, you know, or their graduation ceremonies or, you know, mm-hmm. sport, last sports seasons and stuff like that. It, yeah, I'm, I'm frustrated, but I'm not letting my guard down. Well, I think that, you know, so much of what it really comes down to is, is where you are and what resources your community has. I mean, that's, again, that's what things like disasters and pandemics do. They show you, they highlight where the inequalities that already were, you know, are coming through. And when you've got districts where, you know, the schools are really nice and the buildings are really good and the ventilation systems are great and they have all the room they need and can keep the kids six feet apart and the hallways are big and wide and they can lay down lanes. Like it probably is safe to be doing some hybrid stuff, things like that. But to tell then everybody to go back and to know that that means, you know, those, those schools in lower income, not a lot of booster club, not a lot of property tax districts where the ventilation systems aren't awesome and the schools are already overcrowded and they already had a teacher shortage and the class sizes were already too big mm-hmm. and, and no subs want to sub there. And they're you know? underfunded to start with. They're underfunded. And, and so of course subs don't want to sub at those schools. They don't take those calls. And, and so they're going to have trouble getting the subs too. So you're, what you're going to see, I think what we're already seeing is a tremendous inequity in who has to go back and under what conditions they have to go back to. Because pretty much every school district everywhere, certainly this is the case down in Olympia, Seattle, everywhere you're seeing this all across country, they're always being very careful to say, if you don't feel safe going back yet, if you as a parent or you as a kid don't feel safe going back yet, you can keep doing the home online thing. Well, that's awesome, except that's not an option for a lot of kids. Some of them have crappy internet. Some of them don't have a safe or quiet place to work. Some of them were already drowning with this online stuff because of a lack of resources. And, and, you know, we're, we're incredibly behind in this country. And definitely you want to talk about something I found out in small town America, incredibly behind in access to broadband. Mm-hmm. And and who's got it and who don't? And fiber optic cable and and what we're we're doing. I mean, there are other countries where everybody just gets it. Everybody mm-hmm. just has it, and and we don't yet. We need a, a Tennessee Valley Authority. We need a, a New Deal for for internet. But so so just to tell those kids, well, okay, if you want to, if you don't feel safe, you can just stay home. Well, that's not an option. So it, it's it's getting really really um, clear. Who's going to be able to do this safely and who's not? And so the question we have to answer as a country is, are we once again willing to 
throw those at the fuzzy end of the lollipop in income inequality just under the bus like we usually are. Yeah, you know, your eyes open up. I never thought the insurgents could happen so easily, you know, and that the capital was so underprotected. You know, that's eye-opening. And now you kind of know that you got to you got to take care of yourself at all at all costs. You can't wait around for somebody else to to do things for you, for sure. What was the um vaccination rate in Iwako? How are they uh, doing? They're they're doing okay. I mean, again, there's only about a thousand of them, and they do have a hospital right there. One of the things Iwako does have going for it is right as you drive into town, first thing you hit, there's big church on the right, high schools on the left, and then right after the high school is the hospital. So they do have some advantages that that some other small towns way, way out in let's say the east side of the state, rural east, you might have to drive a long way to get yourself some medical care. But pretty much anywhere on the Long Beach Peninsula. You've got kind of two choices if you need emergency medical care. They're going to take you to Ilwaco, uh, the hospital there, or if it's really serious, they'll take you on across the bridge to Astoria, which mm. is the, the the next closest medical care. So, uh, for instance, I was talking to to Pauline. She was great, ninety two. She had just gotten her her second shot, and so she was already. I in fact, I asked her. You can you can hear me ask on the podcast. I'm like okay, what have you been missing? What are you going to go do? What, what are you, what have you been, what are you looking forward to? And she's like, eh, nothing. I wish church would kind of come back the regular way. Cause she was a big church goer, but it's not like she's going to suddenly go out and start going to see movies and stuff like that. She wasn't, wasn't really doing that before, but, but yeah, people are starting to get vaccinated there and, and that's terrific. What they really need is they need people to come there for the summer. You know, I was watching, Joe Biden's uh, address uh, earlier this week as he was talking about the, the vaccine rollout and his target date. If you listen to that speech, he envisions everybody being able to have July 4th cookouts. He's if, if we're if we're at the point where everybody can get together and do some grilling and watch some fireworks for July 4th, that is his target date. And so many of the businesses whether it's little cafes or charter fishing or whatever down in places like Ilwaco or Chinook, whatever, um, they count on having a good, solid summer because in winter, even before COVID, the place kind of closed down a little bit. So you, you made your money in the summer to try to get you through the lean times in the winter. Well, they didn't get a summer last year because of COVID. So they really need one this year. They need their festivals to come back. They need the kite festival to come back and the salmon derby and, and all these sorts of things to come back. They need people to come down and stay in the little bed and breakfasts and hotels on the waterfront and walk the galleries. And that, that's, that's what they need. And if, if we're at a point where we're back and open by July 4th, that would be awesome. And I, I, hope, I hope that happens because there's a lot of places that they could make it through. A lot of places didn't make it through not having one summer. A lot more places could make it through not having one. I don't think they'll make it through not having two. One of my favorite places to play out there with my daughter is a place called Crown Alley. Um, and uh, they are an Irish pub that's a little bit up Highway 101. Played so many wonderful gigs there. And the owner's a, a great guy and, and a terrific clientele. They made it about halfway through. And then they closed about uh, five months after Bard's Bounty did. It just just couldn't go. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, Fado in Seattle, you know, one of my favorite places to go and watch Aston Villa soccer. Um, 
you know, down, gone. Wow. You know, one by one. I mean, there's only just so long you can make it, and then you need the people. Yeah, for <laughs> yeah, you, you need consumers if you <laughs> you got to have the peoples, man. So, what kind of industry is out there? Is it just charters and festivals and well, there's a lot fishing there's a, and there's still clamming? fishing and clamming. There, uh, there was the canneries. Obviously, when you're when you're in Southwest or Western Washington, you're talking about timber. There's timber close by, and and there's sawmill. Um, but yeah, you've got to. Uh, you you get out to a lot of those little towns out there, uh, any anywhere along Willapa Bay. I don't know how long it's been since you've driven out there, but you know you hit Raymond and South Bend and all these other, and it's kind of it's timber and it's shellfish. Those are those are the biggies. So when one of those, if, you know, something happens, like for instance, um, for if you don't know a whole a, a lot about oysters and clams, oysters and clams have natural toxins in them that can make them poisonous. Well, those toxins are killed off by the seawater when it gets down to a certain temperature. Well, guess what's happening to the seawater? It's warming up. And so you have years where either A, the temperature doesn't get down that cold to kill off the toxins and and they're not safe to eat, or it gets to that temperature so late that you don't really get much of a harvest and you don't get people and you've lost the season. And so when that happens, okay, well, there goes 50% of your, of your local industry base. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's COVID it's climate change. It's this perfect storm Mm -hmm. of a place that was already rough and on the ropes before any of this happened. So Joel, when it comes to timber, was that hauled out on trains of, early on and then now it's got to go down the river on boats and such I, well i mean i would assume trains early on but now i mean you you pass them on the highway it's those big timber trucks mm-hmm. that that just make your life crazy when you're driving at night or or on the rain or what, whatever um and and they're just constantly using 101 as the, as the big time timber highway and mm-hmm. and that's you know you got to be able to to get in and out of there timber very frankly, is probably the most stable of those industries because honestly, it it looks nasty when when you're driving by and you see all those stumps and everything. But the timber industry in Western Washington actually does one of the better jobs of of the the disposable industries of harvesting forest and and stewarding forest and doing new planting and and such as that. So if you if you had to pick between stability of timber. And let's say salmon, man, the, the salmon industry, it's always, have you heard about these new, um, oh, what was it I was seeing on the news? The zebra clams or these, these little, it's these tiny, tiny, tiny little clams and they're an invasive species. They're not from around here, but when you buy stuff for your aquariums, like moss balls and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. these things can hide in there. Because they they get them from other waters, from tropical waters and stuff. Well, then people throw them out, and these little zebra clams start propagating, and they get in the rivers, and they get in the streams. And what they do is they're really, 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 really sharp, and they line the shoots of the salmon tunnels that they help salmon get over, like the, uh, the barriers the and ladders. stuff. With yeah, yeah, the salmon ladders. And so what happens is for young salmon trying to get through these chutes and these tunnels and these ladders, you've basically just lined them with razors. And it's like these fish are going straight into a Cuisinart 
and they, uh, they don't make it out the other side. And again, these things are non-invasive. And once they're in, they are in. And it can be millions and millions of dollars to try to clean them out. Yeah. And so they're, they're begging people right now, man, if you've brought in, if you have an aquarium and you've brought in like moss balls or, or gravel or whatever, man, check that stuff and don't throw it out without, without looking for it. Cause these things are tiny, but they're, they're like a lot of invasive species. You get in there and they're like aquatic kudzu. And they're really, really damaging to the salmon population. The salmon population is so important around here, but so few people realize how incredibly, incredibly fragile it is. Yeah, and so the many, Chinook salmon is is the main diet the main for the ones. orcas. The orcas, that's it's it's a whole whole big chain, man. It's my favorite food too. <laughs> oh man, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Hey, um, you said something earlier uh, earlier that I didn't understand the term a div- divining rod. What is that? Divining rods. It's a, it's a supposedly a, a spiritual, mystical way of finding something that's hidden under the ground, usually water, but, but a lot of times you can use them for other things. You've, you've seen people use them. They kind of like, they, they supposedly are channeling kind of spiritual energy. Uh, there's all different kinds. You can have two sticks in your hands that kind of swing back and forth and sort of find it, or you can have a single stick with two hands. And the idea is you're kind of trying to feel for the energy. And when you find whatever you're looking for, whether it's water in a dry area or buried gold or something like that, it kind of starts to pull down towards the ground. Uh, you know, there, there are people who would tell you it's hokum, but there's also people who would say, hey, listen, it's just helping you channel your natural ability to sense energies. So it's like the Ouija board of In a way, finding. yeah. Hey, look, man, there are two people still on planet Earth. There are two people. There used to be five. There are now two people who every... Easter, they bleed with the stigmata of Christ. They bleed from the hands, feet, and side. Doctors watch them do it. Scientists watch them do it. And there is no reason for it except it's Good Friday. And what are you talking be- about, Joel? And they, believe in, and they believe heavily in this, okay? That happens. So to say we understand everything, we get everything, oh, we understand what works and what doesn't, we know what science and what is hokum. It's like, no, no, Hamlet was right. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We don't, we don't know stuff. So Sprague's on your list. Um, yeah. What other small towns? So I've decided that my, my upper ceiling is about 1,500, right? I, I, I kind of want to go to a small place, to small places that have about 50, more than that. And you're starting to get into things that, okay, is it a town? Is it a city? Does it have certain resources that, yeah. yeah, Does it have certain resources that, that small towns don't have? Um, So, so I want to keep it at about 1500 and I want to get a good geographical representation. Like I said, this first season of let's say 10 episodes, um, I want to ping pong around the state a little bit. So I've done Southwest. I've done coastal. I want to go out East, get somewhere out on the Palouse, probably Sprague. Then I think I want to go somewhere up North towards OMAC and get something like deep, deep in the woods near the Canadian border, something up there. There are stories up there that haven't been told. Uh, I, I want those sorts of things. And another place that I'm very, very fond of in Washington that I love is out in the tri cities area around uh, where the Oregon border is and Pendleton and all that. I'm sure there's a little town out there somewhere that that has a, a story that's looking to be told. And by the way, 
when you come into a town like this and you tell people what you're doing, you kind of expect them to raise an eyebrow of you and look a, a little askance. No, they're just so happy to see. Oh, they'd love to have their stories told. They love to 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 talk and 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 sort of put up a flag to send up a send up a flare. We're here. We're here. Don't forget about us. They mm-hmm. are they are so pleased to have you and hear about what you're doing. So it's I, it's it's. I cool. think that's the magic of podcasts is the stories that are told. You know, oh, we, yeah, we've been privy to quite a few ourselves. You and I have sitting here. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, a couple of cities, if you're taking suggestions um, that I really enjoy and, and go to often. One is Chimicum. Of course, I'm okay. my, keep it local. Chimicum corner store okay. hat. Um, you could probably play a gig at Finn River Cider spot oh, out there. Okay. That's fine. Okay. There's a pie shop out there. Um, the corner store is awesome. I refereed a soccer game out there one time because okay. they, they don't have very many soccer referees and uh, it's hard to even get high schools to come out that way to play. And what was cool was the soccer field was surrounded by farm areas Okay, and they slaughtered a cow and fed the other team barbecue. So the whole game, this meat is grilling slow. And that's what I'm talking about. It. That's and what I'm talking these about. These Chimicum players were um, less than kind to each other, kind of like it was a small town. Like they were tired of spending their whole life with the same 10 people on the oh, team, yeah. right? I can see that. Sure. <laughs> so it got to be um, kind of a, a bitching fest within, um, which I didn't like. But it immediately stopped and it became super communal after the game when drinks were poured and, and food was served and, and all that. I thought that was. The day I kind of fell in love with Chimicum. And little towns like that, man, one of the things that I, I mean, I always sort of knew this from from teaching school, but the Iwako story just just totally drove this home to me. You get to these little towns and high school sports are everything. everything. It ain't like Seattle or Spokane or, or uh, Spokane, even where you can go see the Indians or Tacoma where you can go see the Rainiers or Everett where you can go see the, the Aqua Sox or there's other sports or maybe there's a college team around you can get behind. No, it is high school sports. That's what they got. They live and die with it. You go into every little restaurant and they've got the calendar for the football team on their on their wall. And, and I mean, high school. And if and if again, like I was talking about with Iwako, they had one of the first girls basketball teams in in the whole state and when their boys basketball team went undefeated i mean they they stopped town they closed schools they had this this amazing parade high school sports is is where you live and die i remember at um when i was at seattle academy uh, uh a lot of times they had a really good girls soccer team and sometimes they would get down to where it was them and oh it was one of these towns in the mountains i can't remember it was, it was really good but it was uh uh, oh man, I started with a C, but it was, uh, it was up near Duval, but whenever cashmere, cashmere, yeah, it was cashmere. And whenever we got to where we had to play cashmere, we were like, oh man, cause they were all good because that's kind of all there is for girl athletes in town to do. You play soccer in the, in the fall, you play basketball in the winter and maybe some softball in the spring. And that's what you do. And so their team was always awesome. And everybody in the, in the town supported the team, man, high school sports in, in small town America is, is what it's all about. Yeah. uh, That makes me think of, uh, well, you're a huge 
well, I wouldn't say huge, but you, you're an avid baseball fan and Mariner fan. Sure. There was some type of proposal put on the, on the table from the MLB to get rid of some of their uh, minor league baseball leagues yeah, and teams. Yeah, yeah. And that's another thing. If Besides the high school, the minor league baseball in some of these small communities is, is everything as well. It's a big deal. I grew up in Charlotte and we didn't have, I mean, even a city as big as Charlotte, we didn't have a major league baseball team, but we had a minor league baseball team. And for those of you who've never been, oh my God, go see a minor league ball game sometime. It's the best. Mm-hmm. You know, the old rickety wooden bleachers used to live in Asheville. We had the Asheville tourists. You know, the the, the ticket is cheap. You you go, you sit in the stands on a, on a warm summer night as the sun goes down. You have a dog and a beer. You can hear yourself think. You, you get to see these players on their way out or on their way in. Man, minor league ball is just, is just great. And this year, of course, did you see all the changes they're doing with minor league ball? They're, they're experimenting with all the rules changes. Mm. And if they like them at the minor league level, they're, they're going to bring them up to the major league level. No shift anymore. Uh, pitch clock. Um, pitcher can only go to first base to stop a steal twice. Uh, and you got to come off the rubber to do it. So uh, it's easier to balk. Um, and in one of the leagues, they're doing all these in different leagues because they don't want to mm-hmm. do them all the same one. And then they're going with... Um, automated balls and strikes they're going with the radar strike zone so i like that last one with the radar the bar of baseball if they Um, dig it you know you'll see these in the major leagues and i like the pitch count too like some pitchers just take forever take forever and the idea is to speed the game up and also to get you know like with the shift on oh the bases are getting bigger too um because people are getting hurt people are getting with ankles and feet and stuff getting getting tangled up and things but um (laughs) The idea is to get the ball in play, get mm-hmm. hits, get the ball in play, get runners on the bases. That's when the game's exciting. And so that's, that's what they're going to be trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I watched, I was a baseball fan when I was a kid, but no longer for sure because it just, it's such a time sink. And since Dave Niehaus has passed too, I don't listen to it on the radio. Amen, and brother. Just I, the, by the, the I change like Rick in Riz. players too. What's that? I, I like Rick Riz. I can deal with Rick Riz, but, but Dave Niehaus. Legend. Dave Niehaus is something. I mean, Dave Niehaus, I, I often say that um, my, you know, my, my youngest daughter, who's big, uh, she was a big Mariner fan. She likes Kyle Seeger, favorite player. Um, you know, she grew up listening to Dave Niehaus explain the game right. on the radio. Not you know, tell a story at, about being on the road with a player yeah, like Rick and, does. Yeah, and he was, and, and the ideas, you know, I'd, we'd be outside, she'd be coloring in her book, I'd be grilling on the deck, mm-hmm. beer and beer and some dogs, listening to Dave Niehaus do a game, and he taught you about the game. And I always say that, that uh, if my daughter fell in love with baseball, uh, I drove them to, on their first date, but Dave Niehaus was the music that they did their first dance to. <laughs> yeah. My, oh my. Yeah, well, I hope it all works out. You know, I, I think those rules are worth giving a shot. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to improve baseball. The things that I liked was base stealing was really prominent when I was a kid. So there was people like Johnny Bench, Rod Carew. And the Mariners Crew. had a guy named Julio Cruz that yep. was just electrifying on the base paths and you'd see him get in the pickle and he'd mm-hmm. win the pickle. Yeah. Which now it's like 95% you're going to get tagged it. out. Um, it was back when it was a little bit more, uh, less rigid yeah. basically. 
Yeah. And with big bases and with the, the pitcher not able to go to first as much, they're encouraging that. They want you to try to steal more. Mm, that want, makes it more they want, exciting. They want the game to get more exciting. They want runners on the base paths. The other thing is, even if you don't make it, you get outs faster and the game goes quicker, which is what they want. The game is just that they feel like the, the game experience for TV is just too long. People yeah. aren't going to make that investment. I want the NFL to bring back the kickoff return too. Not going to do it. They just the, the the injury stats were just too heavy duty on the kickoff. Yeah, it was the most exciting play though. Kind of like why. when uh, that's why XFL started when um, they put the ball in the fifty yard line and two guys ran at the same time and had a horrible collision and yeah. Sometimes there'd be two guys dead on the field and the ball still be right yeah. there on the ground in the middle. That was a horrible rule idea. Yikes. So before we go, I want to talk a little bit about the Hawks. But before that, even um, tell tell me and the listeners, the listeners and I, mm-hmm. um, what's going on with this uh, music lecture, lecture you got up? Oh, uh, talking about what I'm doing on Friday. Every year, uh, I I go on and I do a, a, a buddy of mine who teaches history at Seattle Academy. He teaches an, a fascinating class on Seattle music history. And uh, he, he asks me to come on as a, you know, I'm a left-handed guitar player and talk a little bit about Jimi Hendrix, Seattle native, left-handed guitar player, and Kurt Cobain, you know, the, from the, around here, not quite from Seattle, but also left-handed guitar player. Two guys who, you know, there are certain musicians that you have to talk, as I say in the lecture, you have to talk about them in terms of pre and post. There is music and guitar playing pre-Jimi Hendrix, and then there's music and guitar playing post-Jimi Hendrix, and they are two very different things. And the same thing with Kurt Cobain. They are, they are flags in the ground. They are game changers. And it's fascinating that two left-handed guitar players from this area were two of those, and there aren't many. There really aren't that many musicians. Uh, you know, We lost one not that long ago, Eddie Van Halen who is another guitar player who's there's there's pre Eddie Van Halen and there's post Eddie Van Halen. He is a game changer of how you approach music and how you approach the instrument. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll be talking about that a little bit on Friday and answering the kids questions about, uh, about Jimmy and, and playing, playing and what he did and how he turned what would have been in many for, for a lot of players, um, uh, what detriments and and problems into opportunities in yeah, terms Jimmy of how Hendri- you approach the instrument. Jimi Hendrix was self-taught, correct? Mostly, yeah. Um, he was he became Little Richard's guy really, really young. You know, people forget he was backing up Little Richard, and uh, he didn't do it long because when you're in Little Richard's band, you do what Little Richard tells you to do. And Jimmy had sort of a streak uh, of of independence. But, you know, you forget he so young, he, he comes into the spotlight. He achieves so much so fast and so much of what we have of him is only about over a six year span. And then he was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just gone. And one can only imagine. I mean, can you imagine we're sitting here talking about recording software and, and doing things all yourself? Can you imagine what somebody like Jimi Hendrix could have accomplished with like GarageBand on the iPhone? Mm-hmm. What what kind of music he would be putting out uh, with with the tools that you have today? Uh, just just crazy. Now, was he the first left-handed um, known guitarist, or was it Paul McCartney? Oh no! I mean, there 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 have been lots of left-handed guys. Uh, McCartney was was certainly famous too. Um, a little the, bit as, <laughs> as a left-handed as a left-handed bassist. Um, 
but people mm. didn't really make nearly as much. See, the, the thing you got to remember is Paul went out and at, by the time Paul and the Beatles were famous, Paul was actually playing left-handed instruments. He could, he could go and get some. And you mm. see Paul on that famous thing on the Ed Sullivan show, and he's playing a left-handed Hofner V bass. Jimmy, till late, late, late in his career, is taking right-handed instruments because this is how he grew up playing, flipping them over, playing them upside down, restrung because he was just used to that and he liked having the knobs under his elbow and he liked having the whammy bar up high instead of down low where everybody does it. He had just gotten used to that. So it, it's it's very, very different. Um, you know, lefties, I, I as a lefty, I don't, I don't know if you have any lefties in your life, but... Yeah, uh, my son. Yeah, it, it ain't a world made for lefties. Uh, things tend to be harder to find and they tend to be more expensive when you do find them. And, and so, uh, I mean, there's a horrible story uh, Eric Clapton, who obviously a big friend of Jimmy, um, was they they were uh, both in uh, London, and Clapton was haunting guitar stores as you do. You know, you go through and you're always you always step into a guitar store. It's a disease. You look in. Oh, what you got? What you got? Yeah, I was talking um, to G. E. Smith, and he has seven hundred guitars. Oh yeah, he could tell yeah. you exactly where he picked up. You the guitar. do. It's it's a disease. I've got more than I should have, but. Um, uh, he found an actual on the wall in a music shop in London. He found a left-handed Stratocaster actually made left-handed, which is very, very rare. And he bought it and he was going to see Jimi Hendrix that night. And he said, I will give this to him as a gift. They were going to see, I can't remember. I think it was yes at, at the Royal Albert hall. Well, they, they go that night and just kind of chance being what chance is. They ended up being sort of shunted and, and moved through and they ended up in two different opera boxes uh, directly across the theater from each other so they didn't they didn't get to meet up but they could see each other they could wave to each other across the theater and clapton has this left-handed strat and a blanket he doesn't want to and he he's just motioning to jimmy's like i got something for you see me after the show and jimmy's like waving to him well the night being what it was and people messing with you like when you're a famous rock star what that can be i'm sure there were some some drinks and some controlled substances involved. They never met up. He never got to give him the guitar and he woke up the next morning and Hendrix was gone. Wow. That night he never got to give him the guitar. I mean, that's how fast. And by the way, to this day, Clapton, who is one of my favorite guitar players will not listen to Jimi Hendrix music. If someone else is in the room, he, he doesn't want to listen to Hendrix in mixed company. He's like, cause they don't, they don't get it. They don't hear what I hear. Mm-hmm. They don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to explain it. I don't want to listen to somebody talking about it. I won't, I won't listen to Hendrix and Mick's company. I think that's very telling. That's a great story. Man, we're just talking about everything today, aren't we? This is, this is, I'm, I'm going to throw in our, one of our favorite subjects to end this with, uh, as the Russell turns. Oh, what's going on with the Hawks? Russell's going nowhere. He's going absolutely nowhere. Look, it's a $39 million cap hit they take before June, if they cut him before June 1st, and they don't have the money to spend. This, this whole thing, by the way, if I were teaching a class on journalism, I would go through this whole thing day by day and show journalism students how this stuff gets out of control. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all a bunch of like people who won't go on the record, sources say in quotation marks, sources say players who uh, players inside the organization 
say, well, my and and using Colin somebody Cowherd close who's, to the situation close to uh, Colin Cowherd, who's a big voice on Fox Sports, obviously knows Russell's agent and Russell and his agent kind of tried are obviously kind of trying to use him as a mouthpiece. And this whole thing just got spun out of control. Now, that said, lots of people like Russ, like Pete, were there was a point where they could have come out and said, Hey, let's put this to bed. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not, we're, Russell's not going anywhere, but they didn't. I and think the agent made a bad it. move saying, well, we don't want to trade, but if we did. Well, you got to remember, Russ is his only football client. He's a baseball mm. agent. He's a baseball agent. That's and true. things work differently in baseball than football. And at the end of the day, remember, Russell doesn't want to leave Seattle. He just wants the Seahawks to get better. Mm-hmm. Four hundred times he's been sacked 400 times in nine years he is going to go down easily number two isn't even close as the most sacked quarterback in nfl history if he plays you know what what we think a normal quarterback's going to play of course he wants them to get better of course he wants pete and john to depart from their usual philosophy of you don't spend money on expensive offensive linemen you spend it on three decent offensive linemen because they're always going to get hurt and you need to make them interchangeable mm-hmm. of course he doesn't want that philosophy and remember remember russell got walter payton man of the year big honor right what did that mean that meant he got to go to the super bowl that meant he got to sit in the box right there beside roger goodell after getting that award and he got to watch tom brady who russell wants to be and Patrick Mahomes, who Russell kind of used to be, play in the Super Bowl. And what was the difference in that game? They couldn't, they couldn't keep him off Pat. They couldn't keep him off Pat. He got killed, and Brady's jersey didn't get dirty. That game was all about the offensive line. And Russell, you can just see sitting up there. He's just fuming. He's like, man, if I want to be that guy, and I want to survive having been that guy, we we got to change the way we play. Okay, so Russ gets man of the year, yeah. one of the best awards in the NFL. Amazing, amazing. After one of the the best guys that ever played. Another another reason he doesn't want to leave by the way, what he means and does with this community. Every Tuesday or at least before COVID, Children's Hospital. I mean, the guy's amazing that way. He's amazing. Yeah. I got some news I got to keep under my hat about that, but oh, okay, Ooh, don't, <laughs> don't be, don't be breaking there. things. All right, all right. Um, so, oh man, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, Russell wasn't on the season ticket holder yeah. um, letter, and he had that award, and mm-hmm. four other players were. Right. That didn't help the situation. Um, also, KJ Wright won Seattle Sportsman of the Year award for his work in the community. Mm-hmm. How did that trump Walter Payton award all of a sudden? I mean, they both do great charity work for sure. Yeah. But that was kind of a turn of events that, that kind of raised an eyebrow in my in my house. I mean, again, how it all got started is kind of fishy. How it all got going is kind of fishy. Oh, unnamed sources say, oh, somebody close. You know, there was some gamesmanship going on. But then there was a point where the powers that be, whether it's Pete, whether it's Russell, could have come forward and said, this is groundless, Russell Mm -hmm. staying, or this is groundless, we're not letting him out. And they didn't. And the silence was deafening. 
Yeah. Russell looked, thought, looked nervous with Dan Patrick, though, when he was saying what he was saying. Russell, you know, it's interesting. And, and again, if we're talking about teaching a course in journalism, whether it's broadcast or written, you could take every phase of this and use it as a teaching tape. Yeah. Look at what happens in that Dan Patrick interview. Russell gives his standard interview and Russell's not a great interview. He doesn't want to say anything wrong. So he gives you the same pat answers and ends it with go Hawks. I mean, there's just story after story of local journalists in this town, sports journalists who after Russell walks away from the microphone, they look at each other and go, I, I got nothing. Did you get anything? I got nothing. Cause he doesn't say anything. Well, Dan Patrick has enough juice that on his own show, he's not going to let you get away with that. Mm-hmm. And and look at what he said. He said, you know, Russell, that's a very fast and energetic way of not answering my question. Let me ask you again. Boop, boop, boop. Okay. Mm-hmm. Russell's a good guy. And Russell's been a good guy for a long time. And he's very coachable. And he responds well to authority. Russell is DNA ingrained from the time he could throw a football to please older male authority figures. And when they're mad at you, fix it. When they're mad at you, you've done something wrong. And so when Dan Patrick comes back at him a little hard and says, answer my question, it triggers something in Russell. Oh, my coach is mad. Uh, Do what he wants. And that and he goes off script. And as I have taught, I have worked with football players before in my, in my speech consulting, worked with athletes before. That's what journalists want. They want to get you off script, and that's when you'll say the thing that becomes the big scoop for them. They want to get you mm-hmm. off your canned answer. They want to get you off of what you always say. That's why they get you when you're excited, when you're tired. That's why they stick a microphone in Richard Sherman's face as he's coming off the field. I'm the best. Don't have Don't come bring that junk with me. That's what they want. And that's what happened. And, and that's what kind of got all this, all this going. (laughs) It's, it's a text. It's, it's a journalism class. I saw a great video yesterday of NBA players, legends talking about um, Seattle's Gary Payton and uh, Larry Bird. And they had, Everybody that was anybody in the NBA saying that both these guys were the biggest trash talkers ever. In yeah, the NBA. I heard. And, I heard those two, and um, Reggie Miller was supposed yeah, to. Be Reggie was like, I'm not even in their league. <laughs> it was. It's. It's interesting because you know if you read, I've read both Phil Jackson's books, which are great, by the way. Sacred Hoops is good, and Ten Rings is good. Um, Ten but rings. <laughs> he, he goes through and talks about the different teams he faced. And when he talks about playing the, um, the Gary Payton and uh, uh, Sean Kemp Sonics, he says that he, he the word he keeps using was fury. They were a team that played on the edge of fury. It was barely contained. And George Carl was just constantly trying to keep it under to where they don't just explode because they played with anger and they mm-hmm. played with fury and it was Sean Kemp and it was the X-Man and, and it was all these guys who played the game with anger. And that was Gary Payton's game, man. He was playing with anger and he was trying to get you angry. Mm-hmm. They were right. fun. God, they were fun to watch. Yes. What I love the, I love and miss the Sonics so much. Um, so who do you want to see? kept we have something like 23 free agents on our on the seahawks who do you not want to see go no matter what it's tough because you're not gonna that's the thing is this this you're gonna see it all over the nfl salary cap came down at what 182.5 million i mean 
every team, every team is going to have to make brutal deep cuts. And, and, and this next year in, in the NFL is going to be a very strange football is going to be a very strange game. Cause a lot of good players are going to get cut for, for cap reasons. And there's going to be a lot of movement. Um, you know, here's what I will say. You look at how the New England Patriots stayed so good for so long. And one of their primary philosophies was when you have seen the best of any player, it's time to, to, to say bye-bye. Not that they're getting bad, but when you've, seen, you've gotten the best out of them, they're not going to get any better. It's time for them to go. Plus they have the most value to your team. Yeah, sell, sell high. And um, it, it makes me wonder as much, oh, this hurts. As much as I love him, I think we've seen the best of Bobby Wagner. Um, he's terrific. He's a team leader. He's wonderful. But I think you've got his heir apparent in the locker room with Jordan. Um, you know, who else have we, have we maybe seen the best of to the point that they're not necessarily going to get any better? I have we seen the best of Tyler Lockett? I think, have we seen his ceiling? I, I think we have. Have we seen, have we seen Chris Carson be as good as Chris Carson can be? I don't I, think so there. I think we've seen him stay healthy as long as he can stay healthy. I have yeah. a problem if that they can, you know, what do they say in football? The most important ability is availability. And he's yeah, never yeah, been yeah. able to but finish a season. That goes back to the line too, you know, Kind of. I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I he think he still that, averaged over four yards a carry. He he did I when he when he was in the game. I mean, what you're getting, I think we're, we got spoiled for a long time. Marshawn Lynch was just so good mm-hmm. and and so great and and also so such a workhorse and so available. You know, it's interesting. One of the I, I talked about working with football players on their interview and public speaking skills and helping them get jobs in broadcasting. One of the guys I worked with who shall remain nameless because I, I do confidentiality when I consult. But I asked him one time, hey, man, how often were you hurt? He was a running back. I said, how often were you hurt? And he said, do you mean how often was I hurt or how many games did I miss? I said, mm-hmm. oh, okay, how many games did you miss? He said, I missed one each season every year I played just by freak accident. He's like, I was hurt all the time. Right. He's like, everybody's hurt all the time. If you're not a kicker or a punter, you're hurt. Every, everybody's hurt every week. He said, the guys who play, the average NFL football player, I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, Joel, the average NFL football player wakes up every Monday morning feeling the way that if you felt, you'd call in sick for work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, damn because oh. you don't think but it's it's true barry sanders said you know every monday i woke up feeling like i just got hit by a car yeah and that, that got old and and honestly what what the stats are telling us when they start busting players for steroid use players don't take steroids to get huge and beat the other guy no, nine times out of ten players take steroids to heal up mm-hmm. to, to facilitate because they're they're just they're you know they, they can't play they're hurting and and so yeah, um, I you know you hate to cut anybody. They've already obviously let Carlos Dunlap go. They're not going to get him back on a cheaper deal. They're just yeah. Not. I, I kind of heard some rumblings that they might you know, today. I don't know. The Ravens were looking. There, there's just so many teams out there that need edge rushing, and yeah. and he's he's going to do what Jadavian including Clown's us. Gonna do. He's going to yeah. He's going to go out and test the market and and they should see what his and and sure you should. Um, you don't want to do what Jadavian Clowney did and overprice yourself. 
mm-hmm. and think, oh, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm not going to go anywhere for less than 16 million. Well, guess what? You might in this market with this low salary cap, you maybe don't get 16. Do I'll tell you what, do that if you're willing to sit. If right. you're willing to sit out and miss some games to to approve your value, then then yeah, do that. But if you ain't, you know, if you're not willing to pull the trigger, don't don't pull it out of the holster. Yeah, Shadavion lost that poker hand for sure. Well, again, a, another guy who's hurt all the time can't stay healthy. Yeah. You know, um, the, the the most important ability is availability. I think the guys that I worry about you you said a few. Um, I'd really like to see Quentin Dunbar back. I understand that, you know, it's like a $14 million um, price range or whatever. I really want to see Chris Carson back because as much as he gets hurt, all his backups are hurt too. Yeah. And they, they play less. Uh, How do you, how do you feel about Jamal? I could let him go. I could let him go too. I really, you can't let him go because that's too, here's what you can do. You don't look good if you let him go, but because of two draft picks, but but you could let him go. If, I'll tell you what, if you trade Russ and get some first-round picks back, you can let him go. You, you can't mm-hmm. let him go as long as you don't have any first-round picks because you traded two first-round picks. Well, I, just, I really like how Marquise Blair plays. I like I, how Marquise Blair plays. And, and honestly, what is Jamal Adams? He's a safety who thinks he's a defensive end. Okay, so let's let him rush the mm-hmm. passer. Who's back there playing safety? Quandre right. Diggs is great, but he needs help back there. I'll tell you what, if you're going to keep Jamal... And and keep letting him rush the passer. You better go crazy at cornerback. You better go out there and get some guys who can cover one on one and don't need safety help. I'm, I've never he thinks been, he's an end. He I've never been overly uh, impressed with Griffin at corner either. But I think he's going to go. The I worry about KJ Wright. Uh, I don't think he's ever played better. He's versatile. He's a team leader. Right he's the first guy that in, invites the new player into town. You know, he backs it up. He's a huge man, well-spoken, good player. Um, Bobby Wagner has always been my favorite player on the Hawks. Yeah. So you were blasting me. <laughs> I know, but, but honestly, these are these are guys who the, they can stay if they're willing to give a hometown discount. But KJ's already said he's not. No, he shouldn't. Uh, so he's one of the best at his position. I mean, I mean, again, it's a crazy year. One hundred and eighty-two point five for putting a team together is nothing, especially if you're paying a franchise quarterback. Yeah, like Dak Prescott gets $75 million? What's the rest of the team get? I don't know what the... Well, and there's a, there's a fascinating stat out there. No team has ever won the Super Bowl with their quarterback taking up more than 13% of their salary cap. Yeah. I think Russ is, is clocking in at about 15 this year. And you never... You know, Drew Brees just retired yesterday. Yeah. You never want to get in that New Orleans position where you've got this amazing, incredible franchise quarterback and you can't, you can't win the big one because his salary keeps you from surrounding him with a good team, which is what happened with New Orleans for years and years and years and years and years. Um, they, they wasted his best years paying him, which is a right. weird thing to say. I mean, the, 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 the blueprint right now seems to be you got to get some kid just out of college who's crazy talented and while he's on his rookie deal making $600,000 a year, you spend all that money on somebody else and you go win a Super Bowl. Yep, that's, that's what, what we, we did. did, right? That's what we did. That's what the Chiefs did. You know, that's 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 what you can do now because these kids coming out of college are so crazy good. Right. All right, Joel. Got to let you go. Um, all right, it's bro. always a pleasure talking to you. A lot the new, of fun. The new podcast is Song for Main Street. 
mm-hmm. currently on Spotify. If you are a Patreon subscriber to Podcastville, you can find information about Joel's podcast there. Um, support the show. If you like it, tell a friend. If you don't, keep it moving. Probably <laughs> if not I could listening just, right now either. <laughs> if I could just jump in with one thing. If you do go down to Ilwaco or you are in Southwest Washington at all, please, 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 if you want to get something to eat or you want to get something to drink, stop in at the Old Town Coffee Cafe right there on first as you come into town. They were so nice to me. They basically let me take over their coffee shop for the morning. They found me uh, uh, Pauline to interview. They're the nicest people in the world, and they make a darn fine turkey sandwich, and they're the kind of place that we have to keep around unless you want to eat all your meals at Starbucks, which is a wonderful place, but you don't want to eat all your meals there. So the Old Town Coffee Cafe, if you're if you're in that area, please tell them I sent you. Mention the podcast and and go and and patronize them. Please, please, please. They're great folks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to taking a trip. You've motivated me. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, when you sign that deal with the Travel Channel, please know that I'm really good at uh, Best Boy or Key Grip. Those are titles I can easily manage. Excellent. Get in the van. Let's go. All right. Joel Underwood, take care, my friend. Talk to you, buddy. All right. Cheers.